Let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, we do thank you for this day of worship, especially as we listen to the word sung and read and written, that we will be mindful of your grace always with us. Open our hearts and minds to receive this message today. In the name of Christ, amen. In your uh, pew Bibles, page 721 has Jeremiah 31, and we will read verses 31 through 34. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter, three, chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 12 and then going through chapter 3, uh, verse 3. This is uh, the Apostle Paul. When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord, but my mind could not rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads in every place the fragrance that comes from knowing him. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not peddlers of God's word like so many, but in Christ we speak as persons of sincerity, as persons sent from God and standing in his presence. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Surely we do not need as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you, do we? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you shall that you are a letter, or you show that you are a letter of Christ, prepared for us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So some of you who know me well know that last fall, uh, my wife Susie and I traveled to Europe to visit our daughter. She was in a study abroad program in Copenhagen, and we went there and spent several days in Copenhagen with her, and then we took a family cruise down the coast of Norway, visiting all the little, a lot of little small villages and towns uh, along the coast. Um, and every town, every village, every city we went to, um, we would usually locate uh, the churches, uh, the, the bigger churches, the local cathedrals and things that we could see, especially in the smaller towns. They're pretty easy to find because they're all in the center of town. Um, I can't help myself when I do that. I travel. I always go and look, where's the church? Um, you know, where if there's Presbyterians around, I find the Presbyterians. If there's not Presbyterians around, I find probably what's the closest thing to Presbyterians and try to figure that out and, and see what's going on in the life, uh, life of the church. And I'm sure many of you that travel do that same thing. Uh, most historical places around the world seem to be centered around sacred places and, and churches, um, but one of the things that I noticed, and I'd, I'd noticed it when I'd been in Europe before, and I certainly uh, noticed it to a greater deal this time, uh, being uh, in Copenhagen especially, um, that many of the churches that are, that are there, even the big historic ones, um, are, are now museums. Uh, they're not actually functioning houses of worship anymore. Uh, and some of the churches I found that even if they were still functioning as a house of worship, they had something else going on there. Usually community events or um, music groups or different things would perform there, just probably to, just to keep the doors open and to keep things afloat. Now, I'm not going to bore you with a lot of statistics about the decline of church attendance in Europe. And I'm certainly not going to stand in this pulpit and tell you that the church is dying or dead, because that's simply not the truth. Because as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah, God said this, So is my word, it is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire it to and achieve the purposes for which I sent it. So regardless of what happens to institutions, organizations, property, budgets, the word of God will not return empty. Even if there is never any such thing as organized religion and old church buildings are all turned into condos instead of centers of worship, God will be praised. God will continue to send forth the word which God has always sent forth. Now I know we worry about our church, we worry about our home churches, we look around and we just don't see the people we used to see. We don't see the folding chairs in the aisles like we used to have. But let us step back for a moment from that worry about how the church is dying. Because long after I'm gone, long after we are gone, the word of God will remain. Long after the word Presbyterian is relegated to the history books, even when our beloved PCUSA is a memory, the church will not be dead because people will continue to gather in the name of the triune God. They will hold up bread and they will present the cup and they will say, this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ and that it's for the forgiveness of sins. 
just as we did last week right here at 302 Hibben Street. And we will continue to do that until that time comes that we all gather before the throne of God. And you know, for me, that's the ultimate comfort. God is in control. We are not. That's the good news of the gospel right there. God is in control. We are not. Praise the Lord for that. But we are, I hope, all acutely aware of the changing culture that we find ourselves in when it comes to our life here in North America, and especially our religious life. Now here I will share some statistics with you that in the last decade, an average of 4,000 churches in North America close every year, and only 1,000 new churches are started. So that's a deficit every year of 3,000 churches. Over 80% of North American churches either are declining in membership or show flat growth in the last decade. And even in communities where there has been positive growth within the community, the majority of Christian churches in those areas are declining in membership. And we know that's true. We see it. We see it in our community. We know it through our friends and our connections. The church just doesn't hold the same place as it did a few years ago in people's lives. Or people that we know don't even know about the church. They don't know its teachings. Yes, even here in South Carolina, that is true. We live in a rapidly changing world. You may scoff and say, well, the world has always been changing. But futurist writers would say that it is the rapid speed of change that we're experiencing currently that is the big challenge for us. So here's just a few things for you to maybe understand that. As far as number of users, the world's largest taxi company doesn't own any taxis. We call that Uber. The world's largest movie house owns no theaters. It's called Netflix. The world's largest telephone company has no teleco infrastructure. We call that Skype. And the world's largest media company doesn't create its own content. And that's called Facebook. Yes, the world around us is changing and changing rapidly, and the church is being challenged by that change. If the church is called out to teach people how to, neg how to navigate in an alternative way, how to talk, how to act, how to function in a particular way, a way that emulates Christ, then how do we go about that? How do we navigate this ever-changing playing field? Stanley Hauerwas, a United Methodist theologian, put it this way, the role of the church is to cultivate people who can risk being peaceful in a violent world, risk being kind in a competitive society, risk being faithful in an age of cynicism, risk being gentle among those that admire tough, risk love when it may not be returned to you because we have the confidence that in Christ we have been reborn into a new reality. But that new reality may be confusing for us. Now we have 
we have tended to as, a, as human beings, as a society, when we do feel threatened, when we do feel that outside pressure, our tendency is to drop back into a mentality of us versus them. It's someone else's fault that we have all the right answers and they must conform to our way of thinking for us to get along. Well, this is not about us and them. Something that we have and that they don't. It is about something that we share together. The new normal, you might call it. The life that we have together in Christ. And it's only through a right relationship with Christ and an actual relationship with other people do we build that ability to connect and flourish with this rapidly and changing world and we are able to blossom and grow. Now there's probably just a couple people in this sanctuary this morning that know that before I went to seminary, I spent about 15 years in quality assurance training and development in a manufacturing environment. Now what that means in real simple terms is, terms is I taught people how to do their jobs better, more efficiently. Now this could be done through science and mathematics, especially in the manufacturing part of it. You just had to study the person's movement, the machine that they were operating, the speeds and calibers that it was set on, and then looked at the output of that machine. But I found that I got the best information when I sat down and talked with the machine operators themselves, the people that were actually doing the work. Maybe it was over a Coke in the break room or standing out on the loading dock while they had a smoke. Those were the spaces where I was able to develop relationships with those operators who in many towns across the country were of a different economic, racial, and educational place than I was. But what we were able to share in common was that we just wanted some respect from one another and some dialogue. We needed to find a common ground to communicate, a level playing field, not supervisor to subordinate, but a friend to a friend, or maybe at least just for a short moment, equals sharing a common time and space together with each other. It was in those spaces of equality that I was able to learn and grow not just for my business purposes, but for my own personal growth as well. So to help us locate ourselves in this changing environment, in this changing world, I want to indulge in a little more quality assurance reminiscing for those of you in the business world, you'll, you'll understand that. One of the great writers of, that, of, of the quality assurance movement was a guy named Peter Drucker. Peter Drucker built a multi-million dollar consulting business that revolutionized quality assurance in manufacturing, asking two simple questions. What business are you in? And how's business? What business are you in and how's business? Now let's think about that for a moment. Uh, uh, a friend of mine who was in construction told me one time that if you go through a town of any size, you can judge its prosperity by how many cranes are up in the air. So if I drive through Charleston, I can probably assume that construction business in Charleston is pretty darn good. 
What business are we in and how's business? So let's think about those two questions as they apply to the church. Now, I know people get a little jumpy when we start comparing the church to a business, but just bear with me for a moment. Let's look at our scripture reading from Paul and see what he says that might help us explain what business we are in. Paul said in the scripture I just read, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life. I love that imagery. I love the fact that to God, that you and I are a victory. That our presence on earth is the aroma of Christ himself to God. Now the ability to smell is one of the five senses I don't know about you, but when I walk in the back door of my house and I can smell fresh baked bread or chocolate chip cookies, man, I feel loved. Also makes me fat too, but you know. (laughs) Paul's reference here is about a Roman triumphal procession. When the Romans went out and captured a city or an area, they would have a parade. They would bring back all their captured treasures and they would burn incense. And if you were part of that victory parade, that smell of incense was sweet. But for those in the parade who were captives, that was the smell of slavery and death. But what Paul tells us is that to God, we are the victory. We are the aroma of Christ. A little bit later in chapter 3, then he says, You yourselves are all the endorsement we need. Your very lives are letters that anyone can read by just looking at you. Christ himself wrote it, not with ink, but with God's living spirit, not chiseled into stone, but carved into human lives. And we publish that letter. So if you want to think about that in that way, then, then we are the aroma of Christ to God. We are a victory, and that aroma rises up to God And then we are personal love letters to be sent out to all God's children in the world. So let's go back to Drucker's question. What business are we in? We're in the business of being the presence, the aroma, the life of Christ to the world. And to do that, we must know who Christ is. Christ must be a visible part of who we are, and Christ must be a visible part of our life. And we will find this through reading scripture, through activities within our faith community, and our relationships with other Christians. Now to answer Drucker's second question, how's business? Well, I think we can all agree that we could use some help there. So to help us maybe rethink what that means to be a love letter to a broken and sinful world, to be a missional church that this church so proudly proclaims to be, I think we need to talk about that some. Now, missional church is a word that I've used a lot in my ministry. It, it had its roots in some writings and some lectures by a professor of mine named Daryl Guter, 
who taught at Columbia and Princeton, and I believe I heard that he was here uh, at Mount Pleasant many years ago and spoke. And so many of the, the things I want to talk about here come from Guter's writings. But I'd like us to consider four things that I feel we need to do as a church to once again become a res relevant voice of Christ to the world, to be that missional church that we so proudly proclaim to be. So the first thing we must do is to recognize that our own culture, our own backyard is our mission field. Maybe you've seen one of those signs. Uh, there was a church uh, in my town in North, when I was in North Carolina in the town there that had one of these signs. As you, as you pulled out of their parking lot from the church, there was a sign there and it said, you are now entering the mission field. Evangelism is no longer about sending people to faraway places. It's about sharing your faith story, maybe with even someone within your own family, your neighbors, your coworkers, or your friends. And we can no longer assume that our story, God's story, is known to them. To grow the church can no longer be an effort just to plant some churches around every street corner and hope people will just stumble in or change the way our worship service looks so that it's more seeker-friendly. We must fundamentally rethink what it means to be a church in a culture that for the most part doesn't know us and doesn't know our story and doesn't know God's story. Tweaks here and there will not do. We must first realize the huge cultural shift that we've experienced and then embrace that change as an opportunity just as Paul the Apostle left where he was and went into Asia, he used an opportunity to move the gospel into Asia and other places. God was with him, and God is with us. God is our faithful companion as we toil alongside us in the mission field of our own backyard. Number two, God's mission is our mission. Missio Dei, God's mission. If the culture we find ourselves functions, that we find ourselves functioning in has lost the central narrative of the Christian story, or at least replaced it or compromised that story with other values, then as a missional church, we must focus on God who we encounter in Jesus Christ. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, Dr. Bynum preached a fabulous sermon on this text I'm about to read you that really, I think, sums up our mission. Jesus said, I, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has been anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. In that passage, Christ is reminding us of God's mission. We must seek and find where God is at work and go there. It's actually pretty simple. Look for God at work and go there. Number three, the missional church is the reflection of Christ to the world. Now the early church was called those to be called out those who were called out to be different, to live a different way of life, a public life that was a sign and a witness, a foretaste and an instrument 
to which God is inviting all of creation to live in. God calls us in Christian vocation for the sake of the world, not to fulfill our own personal needs and desires. The church is not a gathering place for those to find their needs met by Jesus. In fact, the God that we do meet in Jesus calls us in the opposite direction, to be part of a community not focused on self, but focused on humbling ourselves, emptying ourselves for the sake of the other, so that we are focused on God and God's kingdom. Paul said to the Philippians, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. We must be the reflection of Christ to the world. And finally, the missional church has to be a contrast to society, not a reflection of it. The missional church is about a way of life that speaks to a different set of goals and norms that the prevailing culture speaks And this might make this our most difficult point because it is increasingly not our nature as humans or Christians or as a church to stand against something that the broader society says is okay or good. We've lost our voice in the public square. We've been marginalized as out of touch with the new way of thinking. But the God who calls to us through Jesus Christ calls us to conform our lives to a set of values and practices that are rooted in a willingness to give up our personal needs and rights for those of the one who gave up his life for us. The one who created the world, the one who moves mountains and forms seas with the stroke of a hand, the one who formed us out of dust and called us good, Again, finding that place where we are not withdrawn from the culture, but not fully immersed either. Now, if this won't be easy for us, but if we keep Christ in front of us as our guide and a model, we can accomplish great things. The stakes are high. The future of the church is just a generation away from irrelevance. Our own history shows us that the area where all of these wonderful letters that Paul wrote are no longer Christian. None of the seven churches to which the revelation of John was addressed exist today. When I think of the future of the church, I can't help but remember a moving passage that I read from Reverend Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, The Preaching Life. She tells the story of while she was on a sabbatical from her parish in uh, the state north in North Georgia, just north of Atlanta. She took with her, she went with a group of people to do some hiking in Turkey. And on this hike, she found some ruins 
of what had once been a very large Christian community. In fact, that whole area of Turkey had once been Christian. And now she just finds the empty ruins of what had once been a great cathedral and is now a hiding place for children in the front lawn, a place for goats to graze. As she looks over these magnificent ruins that had once been the Camelot of Christendom, and now there is no Christian for a hundred miles, maybe a thousand miles, she can't help but think of her own church back in Georgia. How will it survive? Will one day her little church be just a tourist stop or will it remain a vital piece of the community that it exists in? How will we survive the changes we face? Like the saints before us, we must live into Christ. We must fulfill our roles as the aroma, the essence of Jesus Christ to God. The church as an institution will stumble and take the wrong path from time to time. But we who are the essence of Christ, the true, the true visible church, the love letters to a broken and sinful world must never lose sight of God's kingdom. Christ will reign over all that we do, both right and wrong. The mission field awaits us. Christ is our guide and scripture our compass. We can be the church that Christ calls us to be, a missional church a church that sent forth its people to the mission fields of its own community, a mission field that starts right here in these pews or in these chairs and moves us to take action, to find God at work in our lives and join God in that work, whether that's right here on our own property, in this town, in this area, in this country, or internationally. God is at work growing and making disciples, and we are called to participate in that work in God's mission for the world as a missional church. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.